Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. As we knew would happen, the debt limit passed in the Senate. We knew it was going to come. We saw it happen, and we're like, all right, I guess the country isn't going to default, and we're not all going to die, unless, of course, you have a gas stove, in which case everybody is going to die. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. In the Senate, uh, Indiana senators split. You had Senator Todd Young voting for it. You had Senator Mike Braun voting against it. I wanted to remind you what Senator Braun had to say on the show just the other day about this. But there's this big question as to, you know, victories, wins, and losses. That's how everybody's putting this. They're, they're, they're putting it as wins and, 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 and losses. And you can see CNN with their, their special board. Here, look, here are the Republican wins, and here are the Democratic wins. Maybe that's the way it always has to be. That's our system. Not everybody gets everything. Everybody gets a little bit of something. But dear Lord, when you hear Chuck Schumer talk, when you hear him just go at it, you're, you're reminded that he's not interested in whether or not the country did well. He's interested in the destruction solely and exclusively of his political enemies. Overwhelming majority of Senate Democrats voted for the bill. A majority of Republicans voted against it. And it's not just how Democrats carry the bill to the finish line, but why. Why'd we get more votes? We got more votes because the bill beat back the worst of the Republican agenda. This exercise was a, basically, this was an exercise in where the American people were at, and they're much closer to where we are than where they are. Good thing that, uh, that we're trying to bring some unity. Look, I get it. You, you, you want to spin things uh, to your favor, right? You want to spin things in, in, in your direction. But isn't the proper answer here? Nobody got everything what they wanted, but this is good, and this is what we have to work on. I'm glad we were able to work together. Now if we can work together on this, this, and this. No, not Schumer. And I, it, it does create this, this incredible ugliness, this massive ugliness that, that simply doesn't go away. Um, it doesn't go away until people stop with the ugliness. But I wanted to share with you, remind you what it is that Senator Mike Braun said about uh, this, uh, this legislation. And, you know, he starts getting into, well, how it all began. Definitely going to be a no vote. Uh, when it comes to almost all the budget stuff, I go back to process. How did we get into this pickle in the first place? And, Tony, when you look at where we're currently at, this is now baselined the federal government at over 25% of our GDP. It was bad enough when I got here. We were 18 trillion in debt. Now we're 31 trillion. But other than through wartime, our GDP has never been baselined above 20% uh, government spending of GDP. So how that happens and why we don't complain more about it, that's the real Democrat victory in this. It is what it is. Uh, they enterprised for two years and put a lot in uh, our baseline above and beyond what some of the COVID stuff did that is got forward momentum. But it is a terrible business plan in the sense that we're now borrowing 
close to $2 trillion a year, double what it was just four and a half years ago. And the only blueprint out there was done by Joe Biden that puts us an additional $20 trillion in debt in 10 years. And the net effect of what we're voting on knocks that back from 20 to $18 trillion. That is a lot. The interest alone, when you reprice it with interest rates going up, will be the incremental thing each year that the numbers never lose. They and, always and win. So so this plays into this, this where, where I saw the issue. It's one thing to say that we're going to revisit the debt limit in two years. It's another thing to say we're not even going to put a number on it. And the argument in favor of that is, well, Republicans control Congress. They can decide the spending and they can keep that spending down. The argument against is, who in the world has ever been able to keep spending down in, in the House of Representatives or in uh, Washington, D.C. in general? This is an open-ended uh, check, blank check, that the president could basically write for whatever he wants. No doubt about it. And uh, legislation is generally going to have to drive any new structural spending. I think we did put a tourniquet on that when the House got elected. But your point, how did we get here? In running a business like I did for 37 years, if you do things right in the present, in the short run, thinking about the mid and long term, things just work. Uh, In the real world, if you were borrowing 30 cents now on every dollar of revenue, meaning you're financing losses from a bank, they would laugh you out of the office the first year that occurred. State governments, local governments all have constraints where They have to live within their revenue stream. Here's where it started. When George W. Bush got elected in 2000, for the over 200 years, we had accumulated uh, roughly $5 trillion in debt. That was the year 2000. He put two wars on the credit card, uh, did some tax cuts. They generally lower revenues the first year or two out of the gate. Through economic growth, you get more. They generally pay for themselves. Dems never want to acknowledge that. So there we went up to $10 trillion in debt. Obama said, you do it. We're going to double down on it. Another $6 trillion. That took us to 16 Then we were running trillion-dollar annual deficits. That's what got us to $18 trillion in debt, two years under Trump, when I got here. Then you had COVID come along. That was an excuse to enterprise, like Rahm Emanuel says, never waste a crisis. The rest you know. Now we're $31 trillion in debt, both sides of the aisle. And let me tell you how it works. The Democrats are unapologetic about it, and they're honest. This is their growth business and kind of their goal, all wrapped into one. Republicans who say they are fiscal conservatives lose it when it comes to the neocons, the most extreme of the defense hawks. I think defense is the most important thing we do, but they ought to do budgets, ought to do audits. They generally then make the deal with the Democrats, and that's been the dynamic of what we've been playing with before I got here, and it's even worse now. So now let's take a look at what's about uh, to happen. You're going to get this this legislation, and you are a no vote, as, as you've just said, talking to Senator Mike Braun, senator from Indiana, candidate for governor in the state of Indiana. Uh, but you have amendments. Now, a lot of people were, talking, were hearing about with amendments. Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, Senator Mike Lee uh, of Utah. Are you going to get a chance to bring your amendments to the floor 
And which ones of them, I don't know how many you have, which ones of them would be necessary to turn you from a no to a yes? So the early bird gets the worm on amendments, and Rand and Lee uh, are generally going to be there with something. I come in uh, with fewer and ones that I think are going to have more meat to them. So uh, as of right now, unless something would fall apart, uh, I'm going to get an amendment. It's going to be very simple. Next time we arrive at a debt ceiling issue, you automatically lift the debt ceiling to get rid of all the drama. But here's what's going to be different. If you don't get something done in terms of a spending bill, you have a 1% cut after 30 days across the board, defense and dis- domestic. So you can't, you're ha- holding both sides accountable. If you go another 30 days, it's an additional 1%. And those will be rescissions, not ones that you can get back on. You couldn't do that until later. That will be real teeth real repercussions, and I think it's going to get a bunch of votes. There won't be a Democrat that will vote for it other than one or two, and I'll lose most of the neocon defense hawks. So you mean Lindsey Graham. Is that a fancy way of saying Lindsey Graham? I will. (laughs) That's just part of my conversation with Senator Mike Braun, and and i got to tell you, the more I've thought about that, uh, that that conversation about neocon there and wanting a strong defense, that's that's really not it. Uh, We're going to have a strong disagreement. Uh, on that one. But I, I wanted to share just where he was. He did indeed vote no. It's Senator Todd Young of Indiana who voted yes on this deal. There were specific thoughts and that, look, if his amendment had gone through, he would have voted for it. But his amendment did not uh, go go through, right? The, these amendments, none of them ever seem to work out the way Republicans want them to work out. But not every Republican saw it the same way. Some Republicans thought this was the right thing to do, back McCarthy, get this done, and then move on to other fights. Congressman Larry Bichon of Indiana was one of those people. We'll hear from him next. I'm Tony Katz. So the debt ceiling is no longer an issue, and Joe Biden is going to sign everything. Uh, The Senate passed it. The House passed it. Oh, everything's peaches and cream, and everybody's taking their victories and taking their defeats and hitting their other guy over the head, all of it. I was fortunate enough this week. We were able to have conversations here with people on the same party but different sides of this conversation regarding the, the debt limit. And as we saw, the majority of the majority, majority of Republicans voted for it in uh, the, the House of Representatives, for sure. There were Republicans who were okay with this deal and thought this deal was important. There were Republicans who thought this deal didn't do enough or not strong enough. There were Republicans who were flat out opposed. And also there were Democrats who were flat out opposed. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, good to be with you. I wanted to make sure everybody got an understanding of of where the, 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 the favor or the opposition came from. One of the people in favor was Congressman Larry Bouchon of the 8th District of Indiana, who spoke with us and was very clear that more than anything, you couldn't have, in his view, you couldn't have a default. The, the debt ceiling has to be raised, first of all, for your listeners. And the reason is, Tony, is because we're borrowing 24 cents on the dollar every day. And so if we don't raise the debt ceiling, we'll have to cut federal budget across the board, including Social Security and Medicare, by by a fourth the day after it's not raised. Look, I'm for a balanced budget amendment to the Constitution. I can't get anybody out here to bring one up. 
But discretionary spending isn't the problem anyway. It's really a false narrative. The budget cannot be balanced cutting discretionary spending. For example, if we eliminated the entire Department of Defense budget right now, we'd still run about $300 billion uh, in, in debt, in deficit. So the problem is mandatory spending, 63% of the budget, and most of that is health care costs. They're too high. I'm not talking about the programs. We don't need to cut Medicare, Medicaid programs. What we need to do is get a handle on health care costs, why the bills are so big. You know, Indiana has some of the highest health care costs in the country. So, you know, the, the, the true debt is going to go up no matter what you do. You can't, you can't fix that by cutting discretion, only discretionary spending. So that's the reason why uh, the debt is going to go up, no doubt about it. We're going to have more added to the debt in the next year with this or any other bill that only addresses uh, mandatory spending. So, look, this isn't perfect. I voted for the original bill out of the House. But the reality is, is we have divided government and this makes progress, but we have a huge problem with spending. Most of it is on the mandatory side. Well, and I, I've been trying to get it addressed, Tony, on the healthcare side here. It's a battle with the healthcare industrial complex, I'll call it, to get control of these healthcare. I'm not arguing, sir, that we don't have an issue with, with healthcare spending or pricing. I'm not arguing an issue with spending uh, in total. I agree with you, but I want to go back to this legislation. This legislation yeah. discusses suspending the debt limit till 2025, but doesn't discuss any caps on it. This allows for as uh, Congressman Roy and many others have, have mentioned, uh, Congressman Dan Bishop is another one of the people who's mentioned it. It could be $4 trillion, $5 trillion, $6 trillion. Is it a very Republican move to have a legis- bit of legislation that doesn't rein in spending by actually reining in spending? Yeah, my preference would have been, Tony, to have a dollar certain amount, to your point, not a date certain. And I made that very clear to our leadership. Uh, I think... You know, the negotiations, people wanted to get past, past the presidential election. Now, let me say this. It's not open-ended spending because the Republicans have the House majority. So any there's not going to be any increased spending because we have the House majority. You know, if this was a date certain and the Democrats had 60 votes in the Senate and they had the House and the White House, let me tell you, it would be a big problem. But we're going to be able to... Uh, control the ma- the discretionary side of this. Again, the mandatory spending will march on. Let me tell you what's what is in this. There's no new taxes. The Biden administration wanted five trillion in that. There's Im- improvement in the work requirements for safety net programs. It's not perfect, but it's improvement. There's modest permitting reforms. A lot of the energy industry needs because they can't get pipelines done. And it rules. It does actually control non-defense discretionary spending back to 2022 levels but continues to fund the, D- the Department of Defense and the VA programs uh, like we, would, we, we want. It claws back $30 billion almost in COVID money. That's a slush fund that the administration can hand out. And it stops the, the 2023 increase in IRS funding that they, they're trying to do. Another thing, Thomas Matthews... Oh, well, sir, allow, allow me the moment of the pushback. Talking to yeah. Congressman Larry Bouchon of Southwestern Indiana, the 8th District, the medical, medical doctor by by trade. Um, that last part there about the IRS agents, 
It's 80,000 IRS agents, and we've basically cut $2 billion for whatever it is from what they're going to get. You're still going to have a massive increase in IRS agents. And the promise made when Kevin McCarthy became speaker was that this was a day one priority to not put these IRS agents in because they're going to go after the little guy in the gig economy making a little extra scratch and not go after rich people not paying their quote-unquote fair share. And in this deal, that's not happening how is well, that not a broken promise yeah it's not a broken promise because the increased irs agents was over a 10-year budget window okay so it's not in one year and and so what this does is it allow in 2023 that they can't do it they can't add the irs agents uh this year this year in dc they budget over a 10-year window so it's not a promise broken we we did rescind rescind the entire $80 billion that was over 10 years, um, and, and most of it on the back end, you know, most of the money in the out years. Um, so this makes progress. This cuts off the increased funding in 2023. Every year we're going to have to fight for the remaining part of it. I agree with you on that, but that's what we did. And then the other thing is Thomas Massey from Kentucky, who has come out in support of this also, he has suggested that if we can't get our appropriations bills passed by the end of the fiscal year, we should we should not put in a temporary funding with a continuing resolution at full funding. We should put it at a lower amount. And we did in this bill, 99 percent, which means at the end of this year, if Congress doesn't act on funding, the budget is going to get that we can put forward going forward will be not only 99 percent of what the current spending that is a big deal but does that include military spending because what he's yeah. talking about is the penny plan there the idea of a one percent uh, reduction we saw this in years past as a conversation in the obama years about sequestration is does that reduction include the military yes it's across the board and 99 percent. so it puts pressure on congress to act and so, you know, continuing resolution, as your listeners probably know, means when Congress doesn't do its job, well, you have to fund the government. So what do you do? You do this temporary continuing resolution to keep the funding at the same level that you have it currently. What this says, it's only going to be 99 percent. So there's going to be a one percent cut. Looking at that at the DOD, that's about nine billion dollars, eight and a half, nine billion dollar cut. So nobody wants to do that on the Republican side and the Democrat side. All of their social programs that they favor will, will have the same effect. So, you know, overall, it cuts about $2.1 trillion uh, in spending over the next 10 years compared to the projected amount. So I, let me just say this. This is far, far from imperfect. But the reality is until we get a balanced budget amendment, we cannot – I cannot get – the Congress to address this 63% of the budget, which is mandatory spending. And that is what the bulk of the the addition to the national debt is going to be over the next year. Could it be filled $4 trillion? Yes, it could be. But the reality is most of that is going to be on the mandatory side because we have controlled the year-over-year spending on the discretionary side with this. It's not perfect. Uh, I don't particularly like it. I think the deal is not what I would do, but with divided government, you can't, you know, not be able to borrow money when you're spending 24 cents on the dollar of borrowed money. My thanks to Congressman Larry Bouchon. The one thing that I, I wholeheartedly agree with him on, I wholeheartedly agree, is that we're borrowing too much and we're spending too much. And we're still not doing anything about that. 
This is where we have to have more of our time. This is where we need more of our focus. The reduction in spending, and that involves winning elections. The progressives spend and Republicans spend slower. You have to stop the spending. You have to do less spending. Until we get that under control, nothing's going to be okay. Find everything at TonyCats.com. This is Tony Katz Today. So those job numbers, when you take a look at them at the first, man, do they look impressive. 339,000 jobs, 339,000 jobs created in the month of May. That looks, well, that looks wonderful. That looks great. That looks like everything we should be super excited about and we can get going with. And finally, this economy is back and moving in the right direction. My gosh, Joe Biden's a genius. Hold on. Wait, wait, what? What is that? That's just, no, it's. It's, it's not good. It shows that the economy isn't cooling. And is anybody looking at the productivity numbers? Oh, oh gosh, no. That, that would involve uh, spoiling the narrative. Now, now, wouldn't it? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. And yes, the new book, Let's Go Barbecue, available at Amazon.com. The perfect Father's Day gift. That's right. I'm hawking my book. Let's Go Barbecue, Amazon.com. Recipes, tips, and tales from the pit. Get it today for Father's Day. Let's Go Barbecue. I bring in the economist, Dr. Matt Will, from the University of Indianapolis. Look, if everything, sir, that we have seen from Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve is meant to cool the economy, bring things down a bit, bring down that inflation, get things to a relaxed spot, the job numbers show that that's not working. It's counterintuitive for a lot of people because you see 339,000 jobs when I think the estimate was only 100 some odd thousand and people say, all right, people are getting back to work. This is great. Explain to me why it's not great. Well, Tony, it's not terrible, but it's not great. I mean, can anybody read the report? Does anybody read more than a headline? I'm just I'm asking the question for a friend of mine. And I think the answer is probably no. If you read the report, you find out a few things. First of all, unemployment went up from 3.4 to 3.7. Wages are up 4.3%, but inflation is up 4.8%. So people made more money, but they still got a lower standard of living. Let's emphasize that, Tony. Everybody this last month had a lower standard of living. And then if you go sector by sector, Tony, let's look at that. Can we spend a moment and just say, if you look at the growth in jobs, it was slower than last year in construction, manufacturing, transportation, leisure, total goods production, technology. In fact, technology dropped last month. The only groups that grew, Tony, the only two, ready for the shocker, government and retail. So when you go to, okay. have, to, to have your dinner tonight, they don't have enough labor. And the government is growing faster than last year. Let's take a a, 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 a deeper look at this right here. This is uh, from uh, the BLS uh, re- reports. Non-farm business sector labor productivity, as you're talking about productivity, sir, decreased 2.1% in the first quarter of 2023. Uh, and as output increased 0.5% and hours worked increased 2.6%. My God. God, that's a massive level of gobbledygook right there. When you talk about the 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 output here and the drop here, you looked at these jobs numbers and immediately took yourself to what they released yesterday in these productivity numbers. The productivity numbers come from where, and they should tell the American public what. 
the productivity numbers come from the same place as the unemployment report. The same, you go down two lines on the government website. Productivity, Tony, is how much you produce per hour of labor. Now, we're not going to include you because you you produce off the charts. But the economy as a whole, last quarter, 2.1% less. Tony, last year, last year, you and I, people in this economy, produced 7% less. Tony, I went back in history. I couldn't find a year in the history of this country since we started keeping this data where productivity declined. Every American citizen is producing less. That's not natural, Tony. We improve. We're more efficient. We're producing less. That is a problem, and that's a problem of government directly related to this White House, and we can talk about why, but that's a problem. You discuss the idea of producing less, but we still haven't gone over why these jobs numbers aren't good. So we have more people going to work. Why am I not, just as a baseline, not cheering that? I get that the unemployment number can be up, but the unemployment number can be about people who have dropped off the rolls, can be about people looking for more employees so the unemployment number could go up. There's a series of things that can affect that. Why overall am I not cheering this number? Why is it a glass half full and glass half empty situation? Well, Tony, the reason the unemployment rate went up is because less people are in the workforce. We're not improving the number of people that are looking for jobs. There are still the same percentage. Since Biden's been in office, we've seen a record decline in the number of people participating in the workforce. They're not going back to work. So you talked about the debt deal, and you've been talking about that on your show. But the reality is it did nothing to fix the problem. We're still spending the same amount that we did before. All we did was say, oh, well, you know that money we didn't spend for COVID really? Well, we're not going to spend it. But there was no cut in spending. So money is still getting in the hand of the consumer, Tony. It's just not a direct subsidy for rent or wage subsidy. Instead, it's going through a subsidy for windmills. And it's going through a subsidy if you buy some green energy product, you get a tax credit. The money's still flowing, Tony, from the government. It's flowing massively. The, the $30 billion that you're referring to was a clawback that came in this debt limit deal that just passed the Senate, talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis, as we talk about these jobs numbers. But I want you to get much more base with me. I want to get much more to this common denominator. 339,000 jobs when you only anticipated 100 and some odd thousand jobs. Tell me in a sentence, in the elevator pitch, for everybody, why is it not good? (laughs) Why is it not good? Because Meta, Goldman Sachs, Amazon, Grant Thornton are cutting jobs. Red Robin Hamburgers is hiring. That's why it's not good. You see, now that's an understandable thought. I mean, this is this is the problem. We are so into the manipulation of the numbers. We're so into the manipulation of the data. We don't break it down into its thing. I don't mind a job at Red Robin. Yum. I love bottomless fries, sir. Your argument is, is that where we're getting the cuts from, where the companies that are shedding, the cutting companies that are losing, are a greater indicator of the problem than the companies that are hiring. But I would go the other way. If the Red Robins of the world are hiring, doesn't mean that mean that people across America have more expendable income and feel more comfortable going out and spending that, even with prices, food prices, especially uh, uh, restaurant food prices, higher than ever? Uh, let me say this again, Tony. You have more money in your pocket by 4.3%, but inflation went up 4.8. 
you can't print money in your way to prosperity. And that's what's happening. Less you, yes, Tony, you have more money in your pocket, but your standard of living went down last month and it went down the month before. And it's been going down every day since President Biden took office. Can I tell you, we've had this conversation before, you and I, uh, Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis, uh, where, where I've said that I get that things are bad. I feel it and I see it and I'm aware of it. I'm aware of it in my sponsors and everybody else. Yet when I go to a restaurant, it's full. And yet when I go to the mall, I see people shopping. And I have been unable to really on a regular basis square that circle. I cannot figure out how those two things mesh and come together. But lately, we're starting to see some signs. We, we talked about it when it comes to the automotive industry. We haven't seen new cars, so that led to pressure on used cars going up because that was the only car market. Then, since we had no new cars, we don't have enough used cars, and now people aren't buying used cars because the interest rates are so high, and they're actually fixing the car they have. We're also seeing this in the cigar world. You know that that's part of what I do with my Eat, Drink, Smoke show. Imports are down because of supply chain and because people who have gone back in a post-COVID world don't have the time to smoke cigars. So that's going to have an effect on that industry as well as, as, well as we've seen price increases in that. So is everything that I'm seeing about people still utilizing a luxury good? They're still in, in the, 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 the restaurants. They're still there. This is a false positive. This is people thinking they have more money in their pocket and not yet realizing what many of us have already seen. This is turned the other way. And this recession conversation is, is not only in front of us, we're in it. Well, Tony, also add one other thing. We are still living in a post-COVID rebound. We still don't have the number of retail businesses we had before COVID. We don't have the number of restaurants we had before COVID. So when you go out and you see all this activity, it's not because there's demand. It's because there's shortage. There's shortage of restaurants. There's shortage of retail workers. There's shortage of places for you to spend your money. That's a, Don't confuse the two. No, 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 no. I think, I think that's, a, that's, a, that's a super good take. And, and we've talked about it in, in terms of, of a series of things. How many more uh, jobs would be out there if the amount of businesses that existed in 2019 existed uh, yes. today? That's, that's the argument you're making. Yes, and, and, and there's data to show this. Anyone can go to, to Yelp has a lot of interesting data on this, and they do research on business openings and business closings. It's easy to find. Now, I, I must ask, uh, Wayne asked this question, uh, leaving me a comment. People are finding a second job to make ends meet. Being overworked isn't creating a job. Now, I, 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 I have that second part we can agree or disagree uh, about. But is what we're seeing in the job market uh, a relationship to second jobs to make ends meet because of the inflationary pressures? Um, no, not necessarily, Tony. I, I don't. I mean, yes, there's a second job issue involved in the whole equation. But I think what you're really seeing is people just not back in the workforce. Uh, you know what? I know this is a maybe a little off topic, but we've seen that a lot of people who had layoffs during the the pandemic have said, "Oh, look." I can survive with a one-income household. Our standard of living is lower, but we like the fact that, that the mom or the dad is home with the child. And so I think we've seen a shift in the socioeconomic environment that we didn't see before the pandemic. 
in that same conversation about a shift, because I believe that that is absolutely true, just like businesses have been shedding people and saying, wait a second, we could survive without all this bloat. And people, I think, have watched, for example, Twitter, for example, and all the people Elon Musk has gotten rid of it said, they can still survive and they can still thrive. Okay, maybe we can do more with less as well. But the, the, the thing that you brought up earlier, was about the productivity. And that was the number that you were really looking at. That came out on Thursday and nobody talked about, it. of course, the debt ceiling deal uh, took all the uh, oxygen out of the room. The productivity numbers as you see it are, are, are the ringing bell we should be listening to. Go through it again. What does it tell you and what do you think it means for the future? Well, Tony, we, every month, every time this comes out, I mention it and nobody ever covers it except you. Um, what it is, is how much you and I produce per hour of labor. And we, you have computers, you have word processors, you have cars, you have better transportation, you have better technology. All of history, we are more productive today than we were last year. You and I produce more per hour of labor. Under President Biden, the first time in the history of this country, we are producing less. Last year, it was 7% less. That's because the government is getting in your business. They're regulating you. They're telling you, you can't have a car. Tony, what is happening this year? You've seen the government is forecasting rolling blackouts at, for about 80% of the population. Why? Because on day one, President Biden signed executive orders reducing the amount of energy in, in the economy. So the president has said, I want you to be less productive. I want you to have less energy. So we are going to have rolling blackouts. Thank you very much, President Biden. So now uh, th this takes us to what to expect. Talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of, uh, of Indianapolis. Um, wh what does is, what is 2023 uh, and into 2024 look like? I know it's, it's prognostication. That's not your, your, your game. But when we take a look at these numbers today, the markets went up. You often discuss the fact that these are nothing more than, than uh, drug-addled uh, you-know-what heads, and they don't actually pay attention to the, to the real uh, situation. But you also discuss how markets sometimes bake these realities already into the price of things. Has the market fully understood? Do you believe that it fully understands where this uh, economic upheaval is, where this lack of productivity is, and where it's going? Tony, you can't ask 20 questions and expect a 30-second answer. I can. I can. It's part of my charm. Um, first of all, the market's going up because of AI and NVIDIA. Um, there's a whole new productivity from the private market that's causing the market to go up. That's a good thing. That will continue. But the regulatory environment is not going to change. I don't forecast the future, Tony, but I know cause and effect. And I know that this uh, administration is going to continue to harm productivity, and you're going to see it all throughout the next year and into the, the following year. You know, you know, Lindsey Graham is a guy that's always said, you know, elections have consequences. Well, guess what, people? You've lost a bunch of elections to people who are, are socialists, in essence, and you have this high regulatory environment. And this is what you get. And it's not going to change. The question was whether or not the markets have it baked in. Are the markets engaged right now in a way that makes you feel like, yeah, they know the productivity is down and will be down and these prices make sense? Or do they not have it baked in and we expect prices to go down in the markets even further? No, Tony, it's both. The markets have it baked in because they see bad regulation, they see bad government spending, they see bad productivity. That's true. But they also bake in other things like AI. I can't emphasize enough 
that the private economy is so powerful and robust, it can overcome government obstacles. So why you, what you're seeing is the, the, the market is saying, yes, bad productivity, bad regulation, bad spending, but good AI, good new technology development, good other things happening in the economy that grows the economy. I love capitalism, Tony, because capitalism thumbs its nose at government and says, we're going to work our butts off anyway and do better. Dr. Matt Will, economist, University of Indianapolis. I appreciate you as always. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. We've got a long last name, a European name, Steinhauser. There's been some confusion over your last name and the pronunciation, and I'm just wondering, to correct the record, what is it? Oh, that's ridiculous, these stupid things. Listen, the way to pronounce my last name, winner. Sorry. No. 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 Governor DeSantis, I'm sorry, DeSantis, I'm sorry, whatever, no. You know, the people who are like, he's so awkward. He's just, he's just so robotic. This is it. How do you pronounce my last name? Winner? Tell me that's going to be used for some other ad campaign they're doing down the road, and they needed this moment to be able to utilize it. Because that's the only way this works. Oh, I don't care if you like him. That's just a bad answer. That's such a bad... The delivery is so awkward. It's... Oh, the video's worse. The video is much worse. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. There are times where DeSantis hits it wrong, and then... We will usher in a reckoning regarding the federal government's disastrous COVID-19 policies. Fauciism was wrong. Fauciism was destructive. Fauciism should have never happened. And if we don't bring accountability to everybody that was involved in that, we can't be sure what will happen in the future. And we must make sure that this never happens in our country again. So, you know, take your pick. Which which uh, Ron DeSantis do you want? Because there's a Ron DeSantis that clearly works and Ron DeSantis... That shouldn't be tried. Find everything at TonyCats.com. I'll catch you Monday, everyone. Monday, just a couple days away. Take care.